Welcome to the February 2008 podcast of Ordinary Means. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hi, Matt Bowling. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah. A little crazy, but, you know, that's just par for the course for me. Oh, yeah. Well, we're looking forward to this podcast with you here today. Uh, we're going to cover a topic that uh, may not be of huge interest, uh, but it's certainly something that pastors have to deal with, and uh, elders. maybe and elders and and, and if deacons? you and deacon, okay, maybe it will be of interest. Let's just <laughs> change the whole thing and uh, say that it will be of interest because uh, this is something that um, is, affects every church. Uh, it is something that affects every one of us from time to time, and that is the issue of uh, communion to the sick. Uh, do we take communion? Do we take the Lord's Supper after it has been uh, celebrated with the church? Do we take it then uh, to those who were unable to attend with the body? Those who, uh, although they are members of the body, uh, do we take it to those who uh, were unable to be there as part of the body uh, because of some extenuating circumstance that has kept them away from the church? Now, there's a lot lot that goes into that. We're going to be covering a lot of material here uh, in in the next hour. Uh, but I wanted to start out with a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith that I think uh, really sets this up and, and makes you think at first, this is something we don't want to do. Um, Confession of Faith, this is chapter 29 on the Lord's Supper, uh, section 4. This is what we read. Private Masses, or receiving this sacrament, that is the Lord's Supper, by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration, and the reserving them for any pretended religious use. Now, here's the key here all these things are contrary, the Confession says, to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Okay, so the Westminster Confession of Faith seems to be saying there that the Lord's Supper is not to be celebrated alone. Uh, this is what, over the course of church history, this has been called a home communion. I think we might have even addressed this a little bit on our in our podcast on home churches. I'm not sure, but we may have. We may have, yeah. Uh, this is certainly an issue that I think many of us have dealt with from time to time. We've had uh, solid home fellowship groups, and the question has come up, can we have communion as a part of this fellowship group? Or, or even when you and I were in the parachurch world, quite a few years younger when... Well, you still had brown hair, but I had brown hair too then. Um, <laughs> and uh, and you'd go on a great retreat, and you'd be on a spiritual high, and you'd say, "Should we? Shouldn't we have the Lord's Supper with crackers and orange juice or something like whatever, that? Whatever's handy." <clears throat> Even some of us in in college, uh, I went to a Christian college. How many times did we have a you know the Lord's Supper among hundreds of college students in something that wasn't a church service? The chapel or something uh, like that. So it yeah. raises a lot of issues, but we want to focus today on this issue of uh, communion to the sick. Now, there's a distinction here. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith 29.4 speaks of private masses or the sacrament 
uh, being given by a priest or any other alone. So we're talking about a situation here where a priest or a pastor uh, or a deacon mm-hmm. or an individual goes to another individual alone and presents them uh, with the Lord's Supper. Maybe we should do just a little bit of review to frame this, because not everybody may have listened to every single podcast that we've ever done before. So they may not have the frame that you and I are working with. So let's maybe sketch the frame a little bit before we get get into the issues. Um, Just to refresh some of your memory, uh, perhaps you've not listened to everything that we've said over the last couple of years, but um, the Lord's Supper, the way that that we see it is it is uh, an ordinance, uh, even a sacrament is the the words that the confession uses. And it is meant for, so it it is meant for the body of Christ. It is, uh, we would distinguish it uh, from baptism as that baptism is to be done once as the initiatory rite into the visible membership of the church, and that for both adults and infants. We would see that the Lord's Supper functions in a different way. It's not an initiatory ordinance. It's a confirming ordinance. It uh, is a way that God uh, convinces us on an ongoing basis uh, of the gospel. It's the gospel made visible. Um, Some people would ask, is the grace in the supper different than what we get in preaching. So if somebody, for example, you could construct an argument this way. Say somebody is sick and they get the sermon on a CD, is that as good as having been at the service? Did they get the same grace as being at the service? And, well, I'm sympathetic to that question because I don't think there's something so distinctive and so essential to either baptism or the Lord's Supper. Um, certainly that, you know, somebody's not going to die and go to hell without them, things like that. Think about the thief on the cross who was never baptized. And so if you think carefully about them. Nor did he ever take of the Lord's Supper. Nor did he ever take of the Lord's Supper. Um, and yet, you've heard us say at these microphones that we believe in that weekly communion ought to be resurrected, a change that Sean has brought about in his church, even in the time we've been doing the podcast. Um, and so... Uh, we're not down on the Lord's Supper or its importance. Is it a different grace than one gets through the word? That's a good debate. I don't think it's a different grace. I think it's grace through a different avenue. Um, Hank Hanegraaff has talked about um, God ministering to us through different gates. And sometimes it's through the ear gate. Sometimes it's through the eye gate. And, uh, and I think that that's a helpful way to think about it is it, what both the word and the sacrament bring to us is God. They bring us the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they bring us that ministry of the Holy Spirit in a different way. So somebody who is without the Lord's Supper, even on an ongoing basis, is not apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they're apart from one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in us. Uh, God's given us a visible sign to convince us of his love, broken bread, as a visible sign, as the catechism puts us, as surely as the minister breaks his breaks the bread, then Christ was broken for me. Um, and so I think that that gives a little bit of a frame to it from what we've said before. Do you want to add to that, Sean? Well, I think it raises an interesting question. You mentioned that it's the uh, it's it's grace through, through a different uh, means right. than the preaching of the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would use a similar argument when it comes to uh, young children. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are those in the church today who want to argue that uh, children of believers must uh, be permitted to the table. Not only 
can they receive the the promise in baptism, but they're also to receive the sacrament of sanctification, which is the Lord's Supper. Uh, we would disagree with that. We think a child needs to be of an age that they can examine themselves, that they can make a profession of faith, and whenever that age, whatever that age might be, uh, I think Calvin put it at about. I think Calvin at some point said, if if a child is not made a profession by eleven, there's a problem with your parenting. That's a that's a rough quote from Calvin. But we're not going to nail down the age, but we will say there, there's got to be the ability to examine oneself mm-hmm. before the child can come and partake. Right, right. And so the the argument comes back then, are you res- are you withholding grace from the child? And we would say, by no means we're not re- holding, withholding grace from the child. We're simply, uh, the child is getting that grace through the preaching of the word if they're a believer, and once they're old enough to make a profession of faith, then they may freely come to the table. Uh, similarly, you mentioned... Matt, the bringing of uh, the word, you're you're sort of assuming that the word is brought to those who are sick. So, for example, uh, old man, old woman in a nursing home, they're able to watch D. James Kennedy on the television set on Sunday. Does that count as a worship service? Are they getting a certain amount of grace? being unable to come and attend in the church service. Now, it's an interesting question because of this. In the Middle Ages, really up until the invention of the printing press, nobody had Bibles. Right. Uh, Up until the invention of television or radio, nobody had the ability to transfer the Word of God across the airwaves. And so if I'm sick... And by sick, I mean permanently disabled and unable to come to the church service over a long period of time. Um, I have no access to the preaching. I have no access to the sacraments. And so, what am I to do unless the pastor, the elders, come and visit me? Well, one way this was how post-printing press was, of course, Spurgeon sermons probably sold more than anything else that's ever been printed on the planet. Oh, yeah. Um, because they would be, you know, printed immediately. They would be edited and printed immediately in sort of pamphlet form. So, you know, I, I think that post-printing press, that many people benefited from the distribution of written material. Um, we still, be- I still benefit from Spurgeon's sermons, frankly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but you're right. Which, is, by the way, I think it was Spurgeon who talked about the eye gate and the ear gate. Oh, was it really? So I think Hank Canagraph borrowed that one. Oh, you think they borrowed it from Spurgeon? Um, Spurgeon was very good at, at uh, what is it, uh, Jay Adams has got that book on the sense appeal in Spurgeon's sermons. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it, we want to be sensitive to people's spiritual needs without... Um, going overboard without thinking uh, we have to put it all together the spirit can't work unless we show up with the sacraments because certainly he can Uh, this is the spirit of God it's not bound by us or by our stuff or by when or how we do it Um, and so I think that you're you're trying to keep a couple things in tension where God ordinarily wants to work through these means of grace. And so we should be earnest with our church members that they attend to the means of grace. 
And on the other hand, that um, if that's not possible live, well, then that's how we get to the question we're at today. What if it's not possible for someone to come live? Now, you're distinguishing, I think, between someone who's sick and somebody who's shut in? No, no, no. I would think that a shut-in is a sick, would be somebody who is sick. Right. Um, for example, you and I were talking at lunch about this question. The the whole issue of what if somebody is just, just misses a Sunday? Yeah, yeah. A single Sunday. A single Sunday. Right, right. And you, you fully expect them to be back there next Sunday. Do you need to take the word and sacrament to them? When, when let's say, you have communion every Sunday... When does it become uh, necessary to take it to them? Do they need to be gone two Sundays, three Sundays, four Sundays? What if you take, what if your church has the Lord's Supper quarterly? And they miss. And they miss, but you never visit people who miss except on the Sunday that you have the Lord's Supper and then you take it to the people. Is that wrongly raising the Lord's Supper above where it needs to be. Now, we're assuming, I, I, I should lay this foundation, we're assuming certain things about what's going to happen if you were to take the Lord's Supper to someone who is shut in, someone who's who's uh, disabled or sick, we're assuming you're going to be taking at least, least two or three others are going to be gathered so that it constitutes a... Uh, constitutes a gathering, a gathering of in the body of Christ. Um, we're assuming that the word of God is going to be preached, that you're not just going to administer the sacrament apart from the word of God. Uh, we're, we're assuming that essentially you're going to be conducting a, a small service, mm -hmm. or maybe the repeat of the service that you as the pastor just did. Now, having said all of this, we've got to come back to the confession. And we're going to go to Scripture in just a minute, which I think Scripture is going to completely change the tone of this podcast, but I'm purposely leaving the Scripture out first. We're dealing with church history first. Historically, the idea of taking communion after the service, taking the Lord's Supper to those who are sick, is, is as old as the ages. Uh, I have a quote here. This is from Justin Martyr. I was recorded sometime between 100 and 165 A.D. So this is the earliest record that we have of the conduct of the church. And he says, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. There's a podcast right there. Then... When the reader has ceased, the president, that is the one presiding, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. Okay, so there's the service, but Justin Martyr's not finished. He goes on to add one more sentence. He says, And there is a distribution to each, and a participation of that over which thanks has been given, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. 
So we've got here, dating back to maybe a hundred years after Christ, we have a record of a church service, and we don't know, we're we're assuming that this is common. Uh, It certainly looks like what we do today. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's saying that every Sunday they celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's saying that every Sunday there's teaching, the reading of the scripture and prayer. It's interesting, there's no record of singing. And he's saying that every Sunday, those who are absent, not necessarily sick, just absent, that it's the role of the deacons to take the supper to them. Now, that's, uh, in many Presbyterian circles, that's completely foreign. Right. The, the idea of the deacons administering sacraments. As a mercy ministry. Yeah, in the PCA, we can... We, we can't even get ruling elders permitted to serve the sacraments, only teaching elders. And, and that makes sense because teaching elders administer the word. Right. And the word and sacraments come together. But this is fascinating. This is church history. So here's this quote. The next thing we have is essentially the development of the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Roman Catholic Church, the sacraments... Uh, inherited all sorts of superstitious meaning in the Middle Ages. Uh, They came to be understood as actually uh, portraying or giving or infusing the grace simply by virtue of taking of the elements. Uh, The body and, or the the bread and the wine became known as the actual uh, body and blood of Christ re-sacrificed, and all sorts of superstition arose around that. You, you know, you couldn't spill the wine. Uh, you know, you couldn't drop a crumb of the bread because that would be to um, lose part of Christ. Lose part of Christ to to be. It would be an affront, right, to Christ right. who is here sacrificed. And that this is why then, with the Reformation and with the writing of the Westminster Confession, we have. This strong admonition in chapter 29, private masses, that is, coming together and offering the sacrifice of Christ again in, in a private way, or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone. Not in, now, notice carefully that in the Lord's Supper, what the Confession is trying to say is that this is a, this is a community project. That it is not just the communion with Christ, but the communion of the saints, which is why earlier Sean said that we're assuming, if you pondered this, that a couple of elders would go and some people would go and a mini service would be done because it is a service of worship of the body of Christ, uh, meaning the group of people gathered in one place. That's why the, the private, no matter what you decide on this, the private is just you and the priest or you and the pastor is not appropriate because... It's not, it doesn't exhibit the communion of the saints, which is in part what it's supposed to do. And this is where I'm really struggling, Matt. I'm going to be honest here, um, and I'll mention this at, again But at we're the mostly end. dishonest in this podcast. Yeah, we don't really are. No, this is, this is an issue where I'm still on the fence. I do not have, uh, I have a position, um, but I'm not convinced of my position, nor am I convinced of the opposing position. And it's part of the reason we're discussing it today is uh, to talk through it a little bit more. And what I would urge you to do if you're listening to this podcast and you are uh, a pastor or you have an experience of this practice in your church, I would love it if you would come to the blog and just post uh, your your understanding of this issue 
uh, from the confession, from the scripture, uh, from your own experience in your church, if you would just post those things, it would be so helpful because I know there are pastors who are struggling with this issue. When I came to this church, uh, I made it very clear that I uh, would not be doing that, taking communion privately. Uh, and the reason being is I believed it belongs in the body. Now, I make one exception to that, and if that is if there is a shut-in who never has opportunity uh, to hear the word preached, to have communion, that we could set aside specific times when the entire congregation would be invited to a living room, to an, a nursing home common area, right. where this person was, and we would conduct a service there. And as a part of this service, that person then would, then would be able to not only hear the word preached, but also partake of communion. That, in my mind, is the only way we could get around it being private. It seems to me, at least at this point, that the addition of just one or two people to say, well, it's two or two or more gathered, so right, it must be a congregation, right. it's a bit specious. And if you look up specious, it means has the... Uh, it has the sound of being probable, but it's just wrong. <laughs> that's, I think that's the definite. I think that's uh, Oxford okay. Dictionary on specious. So, it, you know, it, it, it sounds probable. Okay, what about the reformers? How did the reformers deal with this? You know, because if we we really want to know how to deal with something like this in church history, we go to Calvin and Luther. And this is why I'm very happy being on the fence. Calvin and Luther were on the fence, right? Uh, Calvin and Luther hated the practice of private communion. Uh, they abhorred it. They made, because, of course, they had a resurgence in the preaching of the word and the linking. And this is important, just another, another review point. Yeah. They always saw the link between the preached word and the visible word. The issue, doctrinally, all through the Bible about something visual is it's up to the person's interpretation to get out of it what they do. And why the Reformers always saw that the preached word and the visible word should go together is that it might be interpreted rightly and not that people would be trying to create their own experience, but rather that they would interpret rightly the sign and seal that God gave in the sacrament. And so they always saw the two of them go together, which is another reason why Sean said, if you were going to do this, you would always do it with instruction from the word that the visible gospel doesn't sit there by itself, um, but it sits there with the preached gospel, the power of God for salvation, Romans 1. Yes. Now, having said that Calvin and Luther abhorred the practice of private communion, they both practiced communion to the sick. They saw Carefully. It carefully, very carefully. Luther was more opposed to it than Calvin. Now, that's interesting. If you know the differences between Luther and Calvin and their tendencies towards reforming worship, you would think the inverse exactly, exactly. would be the case. Mm -hmm. Because the, Calvin would have held to what we call the regulative form of worship. And what that means is anything that the scripture does not directly command, we cannot do in formal worship. Whereas Luther, well, the Lutheran church, I'm not sure if this was Luther's position, but the Lutheran position is if the, it's not directly prohibited in the scripture, then we can do it as a form of worship. 
so you would think that Luther would be more for it because, and this is getting to the point I made earlier about the scripture, there is nothing in the scripture that tells us to take communion to the sick. Right. There's nothing. In fact, if there's anything, there there's the corollary. If anything, there is the command that it not be taken to the sick because it is a part of the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul says this to, uh, to the Corinthians. Uh, he says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Throughout the chapter, he continues this language, uh, indicating, even making a distinction between taking communion and, quote-unquote, what you do at home. Hmm. And so the sense of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 is this is something, communion is something we do when we come together. It is not a private thing. Stop treating it as if it belongs to certain groups or individuals and, and what have you. Now, that doesn't address the sick. Uh, you know, the, and again, by sick, I'm talking about somebody who is uh, disabled from coming for a, a period of time, period of time, whatever that period of time may be. Um. Ironically, Luther had no problem if two men were on a journey, neither of them being pastors, and they had uh, bread and a cup between them, and the journey brought them on the Lord's Day somewhere, that it would be appropriate for them to have a a service of communion themselves. So there's all sorts of variations that you're going to get through church history, but one of the reasons that Luther and Calvin practiced this, these things, even though they abhorred the idea of private communion, and that carried over in many ways into their understanding of this thing called communion to the sick. Uh, one of the reasons they continued to practice communion to the sick was because that's what the leadership of the day told them to do, mm. and they respected that authority. Right, right. Uh, we live uh, in a day and age where each pastor sort of does what he wants to do. Within boundaries, yeah. And uh, there's no there's no hard and fast rule in the Presbyterian Church in America. Well, we do examine candidates when they come in to see if they at least understand the parameters of the issue. Yes. And they're not willy-nilly. Yes. They've thought it through, and and they we have a sense of, you know, what they would do given a certain situation, which is good. I mean, at least if... <laughs> At least you need people to understand the parameters. Here's Calvin. Here's a quote from uh, from John Calvin. Um, he said that the communion is not directed to the sick displeases me. Uh, it's not on my account that this consolation has not been accorded to those who are quitting this life. So clearly what he, he's talking about people who are, are near the end of life. Right. Uh, he means, obviously their means by sick, he means what we would call a shut-in someone who's confined to a nursing home or to, to their bed. Um, let's see, I have a, I think I have a quote from Luther here. Well, Calvin's recommendation about bringing the sacrament to the sick uh, was not always supported. And it hasn't, it hasn't been. I think one of the, the denominations that's been strongest, or ends of reformdom that's been strongest against it is the Dutch Reformed Church. 
Uh, the Dutch Reformed Church has always forbid uh, forbid the practice. Um, I don't have the quote here. I believe. Um, I didn't know. I don't have the quote in front of me, but I believe it's the um, Belgic Confession has a very strong wording on this topic. I could be wrong there. Somebody feel free to correct me. Um, but the idea is one of the reasons that it is so abhorrent is that it was so abused, and this is Luther's thinking, it was so abused by the Roman Catholic Church. Hmm. It was so, uh, had so much superstition involved with it. People felt like, you know, I've got to have the supper. I've got to have the supper or else I'm not receiving a certain amount of grace. Well, you know, certainly that wasn't, um, that wasn't Jesus' position. Uh, these are outward signs of an inward grace. It's a grace that's already existing. It's a grace that's taken a hold of by faith, not by uh, the use of the material elements. Well, and also I think a recognition, too, that, um, you know, in the Westminster tradition that Sean and I uh, minister in, um, we see three means of grace. And, of course, this is not universal in our formation, but this is what we what we believe, the word, sacraments, and prayer. And remember, I'll say again something I said earlier, because I don't think this is commonly the way that Reformed people think about it, but they should. These are avenues, conduits, ways, means that the Holy Spirit ministers to us. So even if a person was pre-modern, pre-printing press, and the only word that was available to them, and they were pre-literate, and the only word that was available to them was on Sundays in a church, or should a minister come and, and uh, teach them the word during the week or something like that? Would they be without grace? Would they be without the ministry of the Holy Spirit? No, because we believe that prayer is a means of grace. We believe that prayer is a way that the Holy Spirit ministers to us. Is it a bummer that somebody would only have one of the three means of grace? Yeah, I mean, none of us want to put somebody in that position. But are they apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit by being confined to a bed, even pre-industrial, even pre-literate? Of course not. That would be to violate uh, the concept, the beginning of what we get in John 3, that in regeneration, but also entirely in the ministry, of the, uh, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life, it is always that the Spirit uses these things, but it can also work apart or against or instead of. And so we never want to be in the spot where we think of it and I'm just going to use a word here because it, and we may get hammered on this in the blog, but but um, we never want to think about anything magically. It's personal. Yeah, well, I think that's, that is the word to use. That's the word we understand. That com- communion is not magic. It's not magic. Yeah. It's a, Piper is right that the point of the gospel is not that we get all these benefits. It's not even that we get grace, a thing, a stuff. It's that we get God, and God can be gotten through prayer. That's why we stand so firmly on that. That's why our churches, if you were to come to our churches, there's a substantive amount of prayer. Not to bore people, but we because we believe that God has given us that as a means of grace, as a way of the Holy Spirit ministering to us, and just as through the word and the sacraments. And we do live in an age that we have Bibles. Right. And we can read the word. Now, I wonder if this hasn't attributed to our individualistic mentality. Oh, for sure. Um, the fact I have a Bible, therefore I don't have to go to church. 
Uh, it's, that's just Well, the private silly. interpretation, you know, doctrine that came out of the Reformation. You know, everybody's got their, you know, it's not subject to private interpretation. I have here the, the quote from, it is the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession begins with these words on the Lord's Supper. It says, we receive this holy sacrament in the assembly of the people of God. So it's very adamant that it is in the assembly of the people of God. Now, a couple other quotes here. Uh, here is uh, Olivianus. Hold on. This is one of the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism. Yes. He said, uh, I can rightly conclude that one may not well rob someone who is suffering from a lengthy sickness or is in danger of life from such a privilege, speaking of the sacrament. And then he says this, which is very interesting. He says, actually, speaking of communion to the sick, it is not private communion. In reality, it is a part or supplement of the public celebration. So he saw it as an extension. Mm-hmm. Much as I'm sure the people in Justin Martyr's Day saw it as the deacons took it, it wasn't as if this was a new service. This was an extension, a continuation of yeah. the existing service. Now I don't know that I agree with that. <laughs> um, simply, but you because, can get the sense of the, that's where they're trying to go with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there is a a soundness to that argument. I think it has the appearance of wisdom. Um, well, even that it, it since this is a body and we're trying to meet with the Lord together to, as it were. In the people bringing the sacrament and the service and the word and the singing, uh, it's as though, um, and, and this is a loose way to put it, but just put up with this as you're listening to the podcast. It's as though we bring the spirit with us to them, that that we that we take the service of the body that was here and part of us, part of the we, the body, go to this part of the body that is not been able to join us in the service. Uh, and I think that that's actually that 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 may be a helpful way to look at it, is that um, the pod, the body distributes itself among its members and goes to weep with those who weep, but bringing the word and the sacrament as consolation. That you see where I'm going with that is that extending Paul's metaphor of the body. Um, well, it it maybe fits better than going on a Wednesday night with an elder and breaking new bread. You know what I mean? It, it, it maybe fits better. We have a, some very pragmatic difficulties with that, though, in our age, don't we? We live in we live and worship in areas where some people are, are coming forty minutes. Oh, they're at some distance. Yeah, this is not walking to church kind of ground. That's no, not where we live. No. no, and then if you have a church of a hundred or more, let's say you've got three families that are sick, you're the entire rest of your day is going to be taken up and going, particularly if you're going to take the preached word. Yeah, absolutely. And singing. You're going to go hold three more three more mini-services. Um, now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it because it's because of the pragmatic difficulties, but these are some of the things we're going to have to think about. These are some of those things I'd like you to comment on the blog. How do you do this? Right. Um, and again, the whole issue of what if somebody is not a shut-in yet, but let's say they're sick. Let's say they have the flu and they're out for three weeks. When do you take communion to them? Right. I was right. talking with uh, my assistant pastor earlier today, and I we raised the issue together. We were talking about this topic, and uh, we raised the issue of what if 
you knew that if you were sick on a given Sunday, the pastor would show up at your house later that afternoon with communion. How would that change the way the families in our congregation operate? Um, would you? I think we'd have a lot of people who would wake up on Sunday morning and go, you know what, I'm I'm sick, but I'm going to church anyway. <laughs> Right, <laughs> because I don't want the pastor showing up in my house this afternoon to hold a whole nother service. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know pragmatically how we would work this out in today's society. In a situation like Calvin's, where he was part of a, a community where the people walked. Right. It seems to me there was a much more of a, of a this could take place. Yeah, it, it, it seemed more logistically practical. Practical. Yes. To send an elder and a deacon and a couple of people to different homes could probably be done in a couple of hours. Whereas, like you said, I mean, we could be spending the whole of Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, just trying to get to people's homes that aren't there. But again, I have to go back to the scripture. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20 says, Therefore, when you meet together, uh, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's correcting them here. Uh, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So there's obviously a problem here, and I, I don't want to attribute this problem being the, the problem of private communion. But then he goes on, he says, What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or you d- do you despise the church of God? And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? I will not. I will not praise you. And again, what he seems to be saying is, your house is not the same thing as the gathered church. The kind of eating you do there is not the kind of eating you do here. The kind of eating you do here. And and I can see it go both ways. This is is why I think I'm really on the fence on this, is I can see principles in Scripture that would permit communion of the sick. I'm not sure it's location, Sean, because remember we were talking about over lunch today that more than likely that Corinthian church met in a large house. So it's not a house versus a standalone church building. It's the occasion, I think, that's the distinction there. See, some of the issues, I think, for me, what I expressed to Sean over lunch was some of this division is because, of course, in the early church, and we, we talked about this house church movement, and this isn't the age necessarily that we live in or what Sean and I do. Each of us have our you know standalone church buildings and things like that that people come to, is that um, – I'm not sure that that's the that you know a house versus an institutional church is the kind of thing that Paul's doing there. I think he's more doing what 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 is the intent of this eating and this drinking? Is it communion with the saints together with the Lord, or is it fill my belly? Yes, that's the that's the distinction I think he's trying to make. Not a location distinction, but a purpose, a function distinction. Oh, certainly. I, I don't think we can. Um, I don't think we can say that he's saying. You know, the he, he's not saying here in this building, right? Versus uh, in that building you call a house, right? Right. Uh, but he is making a distinction between what you gather for in your house mm-hmm. and what you gather for with the saints. With the saints. Right. Right. Absolutely. And. That would be fine. We could understand that as not being in conflict with the idea of communion to the sick, except that there is nothing else. Beyond that, the Bible just does not give us, certainly by way of direct command, it doesn't give us. 
Uh, although, are we, is the waiting on tables in the beginning of Acts, could that have been, uh, the administration of the Lord's Supper? Hmm. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, uh, a scholar of that text. What I've read of other scholars on that text, I don't know that I've seen that opinion, but I could be wrong. Seems like that was a uh, it's, it's sort distribution of, a, of food. It was a distribution, yeah, it was, seemed to be a church-sponsored, church-provided meal or distribution of food. But of course, remember, this is pre, this is a daily, though, because it would be, there's no refrigeration. Yes. Bread's made every day. Yes. Animals are killed every day. Vegetables are picked every, you know what I mean? There's not a, there's no storage. So this would have been a daily thing for them in their culture. Um, so no, I'm not, I haven't thought about that text. And of course, those would have been like proto-deacons, you know, sort of early deacons. Huh, challenging stuff. Challenging it, stuff. It is. It is. And uh, this is well, why... We already talked about private baptism. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get that. We'll get onto that another day. Um, I, this is one of those issues where we wanted to bring it up. And I think that's uh, part of why we do this podcast is we want to start a conversation. We want to start you guys thinking about these things and interacting on these things and maybe give you a little bit of direction where to go to get information on these topics um, because we think it's important to think about them. Uh, they are God's ordinary means of grace. Uh, this is the sacrament of our Lord and Savior. And if we're going to do it, we want to do it rightly. And we want to do it completely, and we want to do it in the in the ways that he commands. And in this case, do we not want to do it in the ways he doesn't command? Or do we have enough biblical basis, just our understanding of compassion, our understanding of mercy and love towards those, toward the sick, toward the widow, toward the orphan, that we can see what we're taking into the homes as an extension of the service, um, not as something magical. And I think if you are part of a church that does this, or you are thinking about moving this direction, one thing you need to be very, very careful about is that you make certain that all superstition is removed. Make clear to those that you are taking it to, this is n this is not something that is simply giving you grace by virtue of you taking it. Uh, this still is, a by faith thing. It's still a working of the Holy Spirit. It's still a working of the Holy Spirit. And that, this was Luther's concern. This is why Luther was, was very hesitant, very reticent about this, is because he felt it was being treated as something superstitious. Uh, I would say, from my reading of him, it, it seems like he thought they were just, the Protestant Church was just sanctifying a Roman Catholic practice. And... This wasn't permissible. Now, once Luther passed away, the Lutheran Church went on to continue to do it without any question. Right. right. Um, should should we do it? That's the question. So, I would encourage you uh, to go to the blog. Love to see your comments on this topic. You might persuade me. You might not persuade me, but you might persuade me, and I'm open to persuasion on this one uh, because I am trying to understand what the right thing is to do. I don't want to deny. Uh, any of our beloved believers in our church who have served the Lord faithfully for 
60, 80, 100 years, and now they're in a nursing home, I don't want to deny them a means of grace. But I don't also don't want to take them a magic spell. You know, I don't want to take them this in the sense that if they don't, they're being denied grace. Because they're not. They have faith within their hearts. They have the Holy Spirit. They have the Word of God. It's not as if they're not being visited. They are being visited. Uh, do, does the communion of the Lord need to accompany that visit? Um, that, that seems to be the question. Maybe we can end with, uh, with a personal example. Uh, first time I ever did this, because I have taken communion uh, privately, to a well, not privately. I took an elder with me uh, to a uh, gentleman who is now gone to be with the Lord uh, in a nursing home. And at the time that we did this, we we went. He knew we were coming. Uh, we came. Oh, I have a uh, I have a mini communion kit. I don't know if you have a mini communion kit. I don't actually. I have a I have a mini complete with flagon. <laughs> And uh, flask, I should say. Flasco wine. A flasco wine. And so I took this little um, set, and we went. We had copies of, a, of some hymns that we had sung in the, in the worship service earlier that day. We sang the hymns. Uh, I did a, a shortened version of the sermon. Uh, and then we came to a time of uh, public confession. And... Uh, at that point, we, we, we went around between the three of us and we said, you know, are there things, uh, that you would like to confess? This would be the time, uh, to pray. Uh, we have a silent prayer in our church service, so we had a time of silent prayer. And the gentleman that we had gone to see looked back at me and the other elder and he said, oh no, we can move on. I have nothing to confess. And it was at that point that I think I, I think that really affected my view of this whole thing. Because here, here is a man who, I, I don't know what I would do now. At the time, we just, we went on and we just assumed him to be saying, you know, I don't have anything to confess right now. I've confessed my sins earlier today or something of that nature. Um, you know, this is an older fellow. He was just ready to go to be with the Lord. And I, I don't want to bring any uh, condemnation down on, on him or his name. Obviously, I'm not saying names here. But when this happened, it profoundly affected me because I felt like this wasn't right. This isn't the way that this service is supposed to go about. Here's a man who needs to examine himself, who needs to see his heart as needing this sacrament, uh, not just needing the sacrament, Needing Christ right. more than anything else. Yep. And needing him because he's a sinner. And in that sense, it opened to me uh, a window onto the hearts of the whole of the congregation. When you're serving communion on a Sunday, everybody's coming from a different place. And there are people in that room that are saying to themselves, no, I pretty much confessed all my sins. And there are other people who are saying... I don't have enough time to confess all my sins. And so we need to come back and think about these things in light of who Christ is hmm. and really see him as the Redeemer and see that our faith needs to be in him, not in the sacrament. Right. And I think only when we do that will we understand our practice, whether it's no communion to the sick or it is communion to the sick, will we understand those things are right.
Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, on uh, this February podcast. Uh, we thank you for listening. Again, appreciate your comments on the blog. Look forward to reading those. And I uh, look forward to talking with you again come, uh, come March. So as we leave you, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, and the Lord help you to walk in his ordinary means. Mm-hmm.